Bibles to Isaiah chapter 66. In a few moments, we will be reading together verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 66. All of us at one time or another, and actually probably hundreds of times, have tried to catch the eye of someone. By catching the eye of someone, I simply mean capturing their favorable attention, getting them to notice us, getting them perhaps to like us, trying to get them attracted to us. Children do this with their parents. Athletes do it with their coaches. Students do it with their teachers. Employees do it with their bosses. And yes, politicians do it with their constituents. And all of us did it during those years when we started to take an interest in the opposite sex. We actually worked hard, but subtly, to get that special person to take notice of us. And, of course, we had to do that over and over because that special person didn't, and someone else became the special person. But back into the routine we were trying to catch their eye without letting them know that we were actually trying to catch their eye. Because, you see, before you can steal the heart of someone, you've got to get to know them a little bit. And in order to get some kind of social interaction going with them, you first have to get their attention, and so you have to catch their eye. This, by the way, is what Diane did to me in the library of the university we attended back in the fall of 1966, some 46 years ago. In ways that were entirely pure and Innocently attractive, but clearly intentional, she caught my eye. And I have to confess, she caught my favorable eye. Wow, was she subtle. She was very effective in catching my eye. And shortly after alluring me like that, she simply went ahead and asked me to marry her. I was back in 19... 66, probably two weeks after we met each other. And ever since then, she has had my attention. And my eye is permanently fixed upon her with favor. No, that little story is more or less true. You can figure out for yourself whether it's more true or less true. It's not a lie if I quickly admit to you that I was just lying. So, actually, it was quite the opposite. The truth is, I worked hard, and I hoped subtly, to catch her eye. And it worked. It worked because at that time, I did not yet have a comb over. <laughs> so, I'm sure that would have brought that to a quick end. Well, let's get serious about the subject of catching someone's eye. 
It's not intrinsically wrong to try to catch the favorable eye of someone. But you will not be surprised to hear me say that there is really only one person ultimately whose favorable eye we desperately need to catch, and that person, of course, is God. Don't get me wrong, all of us have caught his eye in one way or another because he is omniscient, he's all-knowing, he's everywhere present, his eyes see us on the inside and on the outside. But what we desperately need individually and corporately as a church is to catch his favorable eye. We want his eye to look upon us with affection. How do we do that? How do we catch the divine eye? How do we as a church catch the favorable glance of God? Well, that question is what my sermon is designed to answer this morning. And so I've turned you to Isaiah chapter 66. And I want you to notice in just a moment, verses 1 and 2. But before we do, let me just point out to you that chapter 65 ends with the promise of the renewed earth. You see it beginning with verse 17. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And you will also notice at the very end of the chapter, in verse 25, God says that the wolf and the lamb shall graze together the lion, shall eat straw like the ox. He's talking about the renewed earth. So that's on the front side of chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. But then when we come into the middle and toward the end of chapter 66, we also see God promising judgment to come. That judgment is especially found in verses 15 and following. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. And notice the last verse of chapter 66. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die. This is what Jesus quotes in his sermon. Their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. But who is it that's going to inherit the renewed earth? Who will meet with this fiery judgment that God speaks of? Well, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 66 give us the answer. So, for the next few moments, let's find instruction for each of us individually and for all of us corporately. Let me read. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But to this one, or as it reads in the ESV, but this is the one to whom I will look. See, 
Here's who will catch my eye, says God. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now, let me show you what's going on in these two verses. In verse 1a, God makes an assertion. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. In verse 1b, God asks two questions. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? In verse 2, God reminds us of his creatorship. He says, all these things my hand has made. And in verse 2, part B, he tells us who will catch his eye. So look with me at these verses just a little more carefully. I said in verse 1a, God makes an assertion. What is he asserting? I read it for you. Look at it. 1a, what is God asserting? What is he telling us about himself? Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Here's what he's asserting. Here's what he's telling us. He's telling us that he is immense. That's a theological term. Immense means that he is great beyond measure. He's telling us that he is transcendent. Those are probably the two theological terms that will be most sophisticated for this sermon. The immensity of God, the greatness of God, and the transcendence of God, meaning exceeding normal limits, going beyond comparison. That's what God is telling us about himself. He's saying to us, I am a God of immensity. I am a transcendent God. But putting it just simply, he's telling us that he's majestic. He's telling us that he is glorious. He's telling us that he is so wonderful and so infinite and so big that the universe of galaxies serves him as a throne. And the earth is simply his footstool. That's what he's saying. So in verse 1b, based on this assertion concerning how great and glorious and majestic and immense he is, he asks those two questions. The first is, what house could you possibly build to contain me? If the heavens are my throne and the earth is my footstool, the whole earth is just a footstool, do you think you can build a house on that earth that will somehow contain me? And his second question is, what house could possibly serve me as a resting place? Well, let's think a little more about God's immensity and his transcendence. Let's think about it according to his own illustration. Let's think about the heavens and their vastness. Now, when we think about the heavens and their vastness, we have to do so in terms of distances. And distances need to be measured by the speed of light. At least that's one way, perhaps the most helpful way. Most of you know how fast light travels. 
It travels 186,000 miles per second. Not per hour, boys and girls. How'd you like to travel in a car 186,000 miles per hour? The light that God has created travels 186,000 miles per second. That's only approximately 700 million miles an hour. That's how fast light travels. And traveling at that speed, it will take you, if you could travel with it, a mere six trillion miles, just in a year. Now, our sun is about 94,000 miles away, and at the speed of light, you can get there in eight seconds. The nearest star to us in our galaxy is a star called Proxima Centauri. And traveling at 186,000 miles per second, you can get there in four years and three months. That's the nearest star in our galaxy. There's a galaxy that is very close to ours, the Milky Way. It's sometimes thought of as the twin galaxy, Andromeda. If you want to get there at the speed of light, it will take, listen, 2.5 million years. How far could you get in a hundred years? How far could you get in a thousand? How far could you get in a million years at 186,000 miles per second? But listen, listen to this. The Hubble telescope, as best it can determine right now, has identified the furthest galaxy that is able to be seen for now. And by the way, there are a hundred billion stars in the Milky Way. It's only one galaxy. There are a hundred billion galaxies. And the one that seems to be the furthest away at this time, you can get there. You can get there at the speed of light. And it will only take you 13 billion years. Can you even begin to conceive of this? This is the analogy that God wants us to keep in mind when he asks us to think about his immensity and his transcendence and his power and his wisdom and all of those things that together make him a glorious God. Frequently in the Bible, he uses the heavens and the earth as such an illustration. No wonder he says in chapter 55 and verse 9, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my thoughts above your thoughts. Now, do you see what God is saying to us in verse 1? Part A and part B. He's asserting his greatness. He's asserting his immensity. He's asserting his transcendence. He's asserting his infinity. And then he's just asking two 
very simple, logical questions. He's saying, if the heavens which I've created are that vast and that beyond you, what kind of a house do you think you could really, really build that would contain me or that would be adequate to reflect my glory? Do you really think you can build such a house? The obvious answer is no. Now, I need to make a very important observation at this point. Because based on that understanding, we might wrongly conclude, therefore, that, you know, Solomon, what was he thinking about? That was stupid. That was ridiculous. Solomon, why did you even do that? You shouldn't be trying to build a house that contained God. But if we said that to Solomon, he would say, I was commanded to build a house for God, a place for him to rest. The fact is that God wanted him to do this. In fact, God almost let his father do it. His father was David. David wanted desperately to build a resting place for God. But God said, no, I'm going to have your son do it. And in the passage that Derek read to us this morning, maybe you remember Solomon asking God this question. He said, will God indeed dwell on earth? That question seems to require the answer, no. But you know what? The right answer is yes. Yes, he will dwell on earth. In fact, before he prayed the prayer that Derek read for us this morning, Solomon said this, I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. That's what the tabernacle was all about. Whose idea was the tabernacle? Why did God have a tabernacle built? Why did he have a holy of holies? Why did he later replace it with a temple? What was the purpose of the holy of holies? It was that place where God especially manifested his presence. He wanted to say to his people, I want to dwell with you. I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. I am going to come down and dwell with you. In fact, isn't that one of the wonderful names of our Savior? Emmanuel. God with us. God isn't against the idea of a temple. God is only troubled with the idea that what was designed to be symbolic of his immediate presence could somehow be adequately pictured in the glory of the building where his presence was going to be manifested. God is not troubled with the idea of a tabernacle or a temple. He's troubled with deficient views of himself. Did you hear that? He's troubled with deficient views of himself. He's troubled with pride. He's troubled with mere externalism. He's troubled with people who think, if we build it well enough, if we build it beautiful enough, if we build it extravagantly enough, 
then God will come to be with us. That's how we'll catch his eye. And God says, no, no. Buildings do not come quickly into my field of vision. It's almost as if God wants us to think of him looking down on earth where there are sanctuaries and temples and cathedrals and, yes, gymnasiums that function in a multi-purpose way as a worship center. And he's looking and he's looking and he's looking and he's passing over all of these wonderful buildings and suddenly his eye fixes on people. People who are humble. People who are contrite. People who tremble, that is, have a deep and profound reverence for this word. And he says, there's someone I will look upon with favor. That person, those believers, that congregation, I will look to them and I will look upon them with favor. So notice the contrast in verse 2. Having mentioned the fact that he made all of these things, he made the whole universe, he's sovereign, he's the creator. You're going to build something? I built the whole universe as God, and you're going to build something that you think is appropriate for me? I made all of these things? Having asserted again and reminded us of his creatorship, he comes in the last part of verse 2 to tell us who will catch his attention, and he begins with the word but. And it's obviously a contrast. But, surprise, Surprise, this is the one to whom I will look. And then he describes such a person. It is the person who is humble, contrite in spirit, sorrowful for sin, and who has a profound reverence for his word. That's what trembling at his word means. It is a deep and profound regard for God himself. The reverence is for the person who spoke the word and gave us this word. But we cannot reverence God without reverencing his word. If we believe indeed that this word was given to us by God as the Holy Spirit inspired its authors, then that word requires a deep and profound reverence. And God says, yes, people who have that, I look at them. I like to look at them. I look favorably upon them. Now, this trembling at God's word, it isn't a joyless fear. I I really want to stress that for just a moment. I don't want anybody going away saying, oh, I see it now. We're supposed to be scared to death when we come to church. Just come in. It's kind of hard to even read our Bibles because we're trembling. God has spoken to, and, and we have no peace, and we have no joy, and we have no comfort, and we have no consolation. We have no sense of his, that's not what God is talking about. Deep and profound reverence for God is absolutely consistent with joy and celebration and delight and happiness. You know the psalm, and I will not turn you there except just to read it and remind you of those words. It is a psalm that tells us how we can worship God joyfully, or many, but it 
it uniquely puts the word fear in close connection with what we would think, that doesn't, that doesn't seem to fit. And I've pointed this out before, and I don't mean to hammer this. I'm just, it, it seems to fit my point. The psalmist exhorts us to clap our hands, all peoples, all nations, the whole world, the redeemed of the Lord. It isn't, it isn't just for people in Africa. It's all peoples. And then he says, shout to God with loud songs of joy. I, I didn't get to hear Dave's remarks this morning. I'm not sure if he pointed this verse out or not, but we talked about this this week. Being in this new environment, we don't have the same acoustics that we had there. And we, we miss that. And we're going to have to sing with more vigor and more gusto. And guess what? With more volume. Well, that'll be phony, won't it? You just want me to sing louder? No. God wants you to sing louder. God said, clap your hands, all people. Shout to me with loud songs of joy. I have found every text in the Psalms that speaks of loudness. Very interesting. It's also ironic that we can be loud about lots of things of less importance. But as soon as God exhorts us to do this, listen to what he says. For, here's why I want you to clap your hands, all peoples, and shout to God with loud songs of joy. Here's why. For I, or for the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. What? Clap, shout for joy, because God is to be feared? That's why I don't clap. That's why I don't shout. That's why I don't get loud. God is to be feared. Doesn't the Bible say somewhere, let all the earth be silent? Yes, it does. There are times for us to be absolutely silent. But when we come together in corporate worship, and when the songs that we're singing happen to be joyful and celebratory, we ought to sing with gusto and loudness. So I'm only pointing out that I don't want anybody to go away from this text and say, Pastor Ted, you preach the very thing that <clears throat> should keep you from trying to get this congregation from being so joyful and so loud and so celebratory. The text said God looks to people who tremble at his word. Of course it says that. And I'm simply making the point that trembling at God's word does not necessarily mean not being joyful. But it does mean to possess a deep and profound reverence for him. So this is the burden of God through his prophet Isaiah in this passage. And I hope now you can see why I would conclude the following. It's not about the building into which the people gather. It's about the people who gather in the building. Would it help if I said that again? Where is the house that you will build me that's adequate for my glory? No, it's not about the building in which the people gather. It's about the people who gather in the building. 
And those people, says God, if they want to catch my eye, are to be humble, contrite of heart, and those who have a deep and profound reverence for my word. And that's why, brothers and sisters at Heritage Baptist Church, we must always, we must always remain and we must ever increasingly become what? A word-based, a word-focused, a word-driven, a word-teaching, a word-preaching, a word-reforming, a word-singing, a word-praying, a word-memorizing, a word-obeying, a word-possessed, a word-obsessed people. We must because that's what will catch the eye of God. And that needs to be true of every one of us individually, and that needs to be true of this church corporately. And furthermore, we need to understand, not from this text, but from what the rest of the Bible teaches, that God no longer dwells in temples made by the hands of men, at least not in the way that he once did. I don't have time to take you to, serm- to Stephen's sermon just before he was stoned to death, but do you remember that toward the end of the sermon, he told his hearers that. He literally said, God does not dwell in temples made by men's hands. Does that mean that we can't expect God to be with us when we gather? No, 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 it doesn't mean that at all. He doesn't dwell in those temples the way he dwelt in the Holy of Holies during the period of the Old Covenant. He doesn't manifest his special presence in that same way. And the reason is because we have become, we have become the temple of God. We have become the temple of God. That's what Paul says. He doesn't merely say in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians that our bodies are the temple. It does say that. And that has implications, doesn't it? The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, lives within us. Our bodies are the temple. And we should treat our bodies as the temple of God. But in chapter 3 and verse 16, he speaks to the church at Corinth and he says, You, you Christians there in that church, you are the temple of God. The local church is the temple of God. And the amazing thing is that we get to build what we are. So what what do you mean? Well, we are the temple. What is God's big enterprise in this world? It is temple building. And I don't mean structures. I mean people. God's great enterprise is to spread the fame of his name through the preaching of the gospel until billions of believers are brought to life and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and become a part of that temple which has local manifestations. In a sense, that's what the Great Commission is about. And I think it's very interesting... And again, I can't turn you to this because it would be an inappropriate diversion. But if you would sometime read the last few verses of Second Chronicles chapter 36, and please resist the temptation to do it now. 
you will find an amazing thing. God raised up Cyrus and told him, I am making you sovereign over all the nations, and I want you to see to it that the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem. And in a very interesting way, Jesus Christ comes to become the greater than Cyrus, who does the same thing. The the parallels are really quite striking. Heaven and earth are in there. But you know in the Great Commission, God gives to the church this job, this task, this mission. Go into all of the world. Make disciples of all all of the nations and a disciple by definition is a person who has come to place their personal trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ maybe this is a good place for me just to explain ever so briefly what the gospel is the good news of God's word is that we who are destined for hell because we've sinned against the holy and just God can be forgiven can be pronounced righteous because Jesus came to earth to live and die and pay for our our sins, to take the wrath of God which we deserve. He took it while he was on the cross. He was, in a sense, sent to hell. And the promise of the gospel and the good news is that the moment we feel our sinfulness and see the, the plight we're in and the danger and the judgment that is to come and flee to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, take all of my sins. He says, I will, but you must take something from me as well. I give you my righteousness and a true believer is clothed in the righteousness of Christ perfectly from that moment on and you are forever forgiven and you have eternal life Jesus came to do that and he is the heart of the gospel and this same Jesus who did that for us wants us to participate in God's global mission of temple building and if you don't think God is interested in building a temple then go to the end of your Bible and when you get to Revelation chapter 21 you will see that when this earth is renewed and when the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven The apostle will say, And I saw no temple in the city. And then he explains why. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. So in a strange way, we are the temple of God. And in a strange way, at the same time, throughout the eons of eternity, we will dwell in his immediate presence. He will be the temple. And now we have the opportunity to participate in his enterprise of temple building. But it's not about blocks. It's not about steel girders. It's not about aesthetics. It's about people and a certain kind of people a people who are humble contrite of spirit and who possess a profound reverence for God's word 
So what does this passage say to us today? Today, Dedication Sunday. And this is just sort of our private little dedication. Glad for visitors. Hope you come back, become a part of this family. Glad you're here already. Hope everyone, as Justin said, will be back this afternoon. This is a big deal. This is a very big deal. Don't miss the afternoon service. One of God's choice servants will be preaching for us. The choir will be singing again. Two prayers of dedication and other wonderful things. This is a big day for us. But what is the big deal of Isaiah 66? What is God saying to us? He's saying to us, you have a nice building. I gave it to you. It isn't stately in the sense of a typical cathedral or sanctuary. It isn't breathtaking. It isn't opulent. It isn't elegant. I think it's classy, but it's not elegant. It's not refined. You know what it is? It's an attractive, functional building wherein Heritage Christian School can do better than it's ever done before in educating and attracting people from the community for the sake of the gospel. It's a place where we can meet to do what we're doing this very moment. And what can we expect? Here's what we can expect. It depends. It depends on the people in the building. It doesn't depend on the building. It depends on the people. If we are indeed a genuinely humble, contrite, reverent people, we can expect God's special presence to be with us. Because we will be gathering as Jesus required for the promise that I'm about to quote, in his name. And he said in Matthew 18 and verse 20, that if even two or three of my disciples gather in my name, I am in the midst of you. Well, if that's true of a small gathering of believers, what do you think it means when the covenant people of God gather in their corporate stated meetings? We have the promise of God's special presence whenever we gather corporately. And we can expect him to do great things in our presence. And we should pray that he will do great things in our presence. I hope that you will join me in praying, Oh God, please come into this room. Nothing I've said today keeps me from saying this. Please come into this room, especially on the Lord's days and at other times when we may have stated gatherings in here. At times when Heritage Christian School meets in here and Mr. Hoke opens the Word of God in unique opportunities, come into this room, O God, please, and save sinners. Give faith. Open understandings. Break hearts. Draw the lost to the Savior. And sanctify believers and edify believers and teach them the truth. God, do great things in this room. Call missionaries from this room. Oh God, may the day come when people beside Dwayne and Kimberly come to us and say, sitting in church only X number of weeks ago, 
we both felt more than ever before the the compulsion to go and to get the gospel to people who've never heard it. Why can't we pray that? You know that there is no reason we can't pray that. We should pray that. And so on this dedication Sunday, I'm asking this whole congregation to remember God doesn't care about this building. He's glad that we're thankful for it. He wants us to return thanks to him. But he doesn't care about this building. He cares about the people who gather here. And he's saying to Heritage Baptist Church this morning, you want my eye? You really want to get my attention? You really want me to notice you? Here's how you can catch my eye. By my grace, you walk humbly. You walk with brokenness of heart for your sin. You be contrite in your spirit, and you have and maintain a deep and holy reverence for my word, which in some cases literally causes you to tremble. And God says, if you do that, I will be with you. You will not only have my eye, but you will have my special presence. May God help us to be that kind of a church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. And we ask that you would forgive us for our own natural tendencies to be external and to put our confidence in the wrong things. We thank you that by your grace we're not like the old covenant people who were not truly those at least who were not truly born again, who expected your blessing for the wrong reasons. We thank you that we know better than that. But Lord, we confess to you that we tend to forget that as well. And we find our own subtle ways of putting our confidence in the wrong things. And at least this morning, you're making it very clear to us that if we want your favorable attention, we are to be a humble people and a contrite people and a people who reverence your word. Lord, we will pray this many times, even more today. But we want to ask now that in the years to come, that this very room in this very room you will save sinners you will sanctify saints and you will call missionaries we ask in Jesus name Amen receive this benediction from God. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you.